Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast of excellence, talking about book three, chapter seven. And then we'll be reading chapter eight. And I did manage today to do my chapter translation, so we'll be reading the Andalus edition of chapter eight. Um, discussion prompts for chapter seven. Chap- chapter? Did I say chapter? Chapter. Chap- chapter. Oh my god. I think I'm having a stroke. Why does chapter sound so weird? Oh, this could be an interesting podcast. <clears throat> this chapter clearly contrasts Nikolai's rough frontline experience with Boris's more comfortable position in the guards. Which one of these soldiers do you think is more honest with themselves? Do you think the description of Nikolai's story, he began telling the story with the intention of telling it exactly as it had been, but imperceptibly, involuntarily and inevitably, for himself he went over into untruth. Can it be taken as a fair meta-commentary of Tolstoy's writing about the Napoleonic invasion of Russia itself? What insight does it provide for other war stories? The question reminds me a little bit of The Things They Carried. Um, which is a really good book of short stories about the Vietnam War. I say that with only 90% confidence, because it was a while since I read it. But there's an ongoing theme about that book, that they're all true stories. They mention a few times that these war stories are all true, but then there's a continual theme within those stories about the fact that you can't tell a war story truthfully without exaggerating it because i think it's something like this the 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 theme was like being in a war is so surreal that if you tell the accounts um factually you don't give the sense of surrealness that is there if that makes sense so when you say you're surrounded by enemies and they say how many and in reality, it might have been four, but they'll say a dozen, you know. And that sounds surreal that you could overcome a dozen enemies, but that's how surreal it was at that time, even though there were only four. Um, it's something like that. It's impossible to tell a war story truthfully without exaggerating it. Kind of a weird thing. Um, and that reminds me a bit of that, that question there. Um, although I think in Rostov's case, it was more... If, uh, it was more just boasting, wasn't it? Um, it's to some degree. I think he was just being boastful. Uh, the other thing I really like about this um, chapter is that it brings together two characters, two main characters, um, well, so far in the book at least, Andre and Nikolai. And by now you kind of are getting to know both of them and are starting to like both of them. Um, they're both flawed in their own ways, but Tolstoy does a great job of taking a flawed character and, and making you like them. And we've just come to the point, I think, for most of us, where we kind of like Andre now, you know. We've seen him be a dickhead back home with his poor little wife, but we've, we're kind of starting to see the value in him, you know, the good in him. And same with Nikolai. We see him as a, as a naive, but ultimately good-spirited young man. And the thing I love about this chapter is Tolstoy takes these two main characters who don't yet know each other and makes them sort of dislike each other as a way to introduce them. 
um, because it kind of makes you think, well, whose side are you on? I like them both. I think that's really cool. War uh, <clears throat> and Kovofifi says, seeing Rostov act like a loud drunk boasting about his supposed valiance only to be intimidated and shut up by Andre, the true badass, was so ever so satisfying. I think he better think twice about challenging Andre to a duel because Andre won't hesitate to put a bullet in him. <laughs> I think you're probably right. Uh, Boris is the more honest of the two. Rostov is trying to get recognition through battle, something that he really doesn't seem cut for, at least at this point of the story. Boris, on the other hand, wants to get a position that would advance his career, and he admits that he has no interest in going to the front. Now, Boris... um, Rostov knows Boris because Boris is the guy that Natasha is in love with even though he's too old for her and he sort of said you know I'll come back in five years or whatever he says um that's Boris and then there was also Berg Berg in this chapter and Berg I think has been mentioned once or twice in the novel in passing and Berg is Vera's love interest I believe Vera being the older of the Rostov children so we've got Nikolai who's in love with Sonia, his own cousin. Um, we've got Berg, who's in love with um, Vera, I think. Have I got that right? And we've got Boris, who's in love with... who Natasha is in love with. And we've got those three people in the same room. And I just wanted to recap that because we've these names are all familiar. Boris, Berg, um, you know, Rostov... I just wanted to make sure that we're all remembering who they are. Um, Ryan Dundev says, I really enjoyed reading Nikolai in this chapter. His youthful, silly impulsivity is charming in its own way. It kind of reminds me of what it's actually like to be that young, full of overflowing emotions, trying to prove yourself, establishing your personality. He's boastful and foolish, and Andrew smells him out and coolly exposes him in a way that seems to make him want to be better. Yeah, it is very relatable. I remember being young like that. And, uh, you know, if you ever got called out by someone older when you're in the middle of having a good old boast, having a good old brag, and someone older calls you out, yeah, it really does sort of shut you down. That definitely happened to me when I was a young man. Brian E. Denton said, I always think of my old friend Arun when I read today's chapter. We were close friends during freshman and sophomore years of high school. Then my family moved away and we didn't see each other for many years. Years later, our paths crossed again in New York City in a bar. Naturally, like Rostov here, we had to show off all the adult habits and practices we'd picked up over the years. So we ended up drinking too much and both of us got sick, pulled a Rostov. That's awesome. Um, Oh, man. The most awesome thing about that is just going to a New York bar. I've only ever watched movies set in New York. I've never been there. When I did go to America, I didn't get over to the East Coast. Um, I've always had this feeling with New York that if I went there, I'd probably never leave. Like, I just feel like of all the places in the world, that'd be one that I would just fit right in. I really feel like that. Um, Twisted Every Way says, yes, Boris is definitely being more honest about his situation than Rostov is about his. Boris is also being practical about his career path in the army and what will keep him fed and dry from the elements of war. Despite what Rostov has seen, he's still a dreamer and idealist about the war and doesn't want to be an adjutant. 
getting awards for not even doing anything, which is ironic considering his promotion for being clumsy and running away. I would say most people are prone to embellish stories, especially when life and death are on the line. Probably true. Probably true. You know, if I had a near-death experience in a, in a war, I would probably make myself sound a little bit cooler than I than actually happened. Um, Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says, I'm just glad that Rostov got his care package. The Russian guards abroad hardly seemed like a sufficient way of addressing it. Also, Bolkonsky is right, it's November 12th. Shon Graburn was just a scuffle. Just a scuffle. <clears throat> All right. That's that. Um, okay, what are we up to here? Chapter 8. Damn. Every time, every time I read what chapter we're up to, I feel amazed at how far we've come. All right, chapter 8 goes like this. Days after Rostov went and caught up with Boris, a review was held of the Austrian and Russian troops, including both the freshies that had just come in from Russia and those who had just fought under Kutuzov. The two emperors, the Russian with his heir, the Grand Duke, and the Austrian with the Archduke, came to inspect the Allied army of 80,000 men. Since early that morning, the Schmick and clean troops were moving, forming up on the field out front of the fortress. Now thousands of feet and approximately half as many bayonets moved with the flags flying high on the standards and, when the officer commanded it, halted, turned and lined up at intervals, wheeling around other similar masses of infantry in different uniforms. Now there were the rhythmic sounds of hoofs beating and blue, red and green braided uniforms jingling on the sharp-looking cavalry, the bandsmen looking slick too in the front, atop their black, grey and chestnut horses and then spreading out with the brash clattering of the cannons, polished and shining, rattling on their carriages, casting the smell of their linstocks, came the artillery, which crawled between the infantry and cavalry and took its designated position. Not just the generals in... Not just the generals were in full... Not just the generals in full-on parade uniforms with their waists, whether they were thick or scrawny, drawn up as far as far as possible, and their necks jammed into their stiff collars, wearing sashes and all their decorations. Not only the elegant pomaded officers, but every last soldier with his clean-shaven face and his weapons polished to the max, and every horse groomed to within an inch of its life, its wetted manes. Oops, their wetted manes. Lying smooth, felt that this was no trivial matter, but a momentous occasion. Every general and every soldier was well aware of his own insignificance, aware of being just a drop in the ocean of men, and yet at the same time was aware of his strength as part of that enormous whole. They'd been working their asses off all morning, and by ten o'clock they'd sorted everything out. The ranks were drawn up on the massive field. The army... The whole army was stretched out in three lines, the cavalry on front, the artillery, then the infantry. A gap was left between each like a street. It was a it was real easy to tell the three parts of that army apart, Kutuzov's fighting army with the Pavlograds on the right flank of the front. Then the troops who had recently arrived from Russia, made up of infantry and guard regiments, and the Austrian troops. But they all stood in one formation, under one command, and in one order. An excited whisper 
ran over them like wind over leaves. They're coming, they're coming. Voices of men shitting themselves could be heard and a ripple of last-minute preparations rushed among the troops. A group approached them from ahead, from the direction of Ulmutz, and at the moment a random wind swept over them, even though it was a very still day, and it stirred the streamers of the lances, and the flags fluttered upon their staffs. It looked like the whole army was ruffling its feathers in excitement at the approaching emperors. One loud voice was heard, eyes front, then, like the roosters crowing at sunrise, like roosters crowing at sunrise, the command was repeated by others around the sides, and everyone went silent. It was quiet as all get out. You could only hear the tramp of horses. This was the emperor's suites. The emperors rode up to the flank, and the trumpets of the 1st Cavalry Regiment played the general march. It didn't seem like trumpets playing. It was more like the whole army had erupted in rejoiceful, rejoiceful music at the approaching emperors. Through these sounds came the youthful and kind voice of Emperor Alexander. He greeted them, and the 1st Regiment roared hurrah so loudly, flat out, and non-stop, that the overjoyed men themselves were amazed by their immense power. The Tsar approached Kutuzov's army first, and Rostov, standing in the front lines, felt the same feeling as every other man in that army. They all forgot themselves and felt a proud and felt proud of their collective might and passionately enthralled by the man who was uniting them all. He felt that with just one word from that man, every last man in this army, including himself, an insignificant atom in it, would go through hell and high water, commit any crime, die, or perform acts of ultimate heroism, and so he couldn't help trembling. His heart stood still, anticipating that word. Hurrah, 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 thundered from all sides, one regiment after another, greeting the Tsar with the strains of the march, and then hurrah. Then the general march again, and again, hurrah, hurrah, growing stronger and fuller and becoming one solitary, deafening roar. Each regiment was like a corpse, silent and lifeless, until the Tsar reached it. And then, as soon as he came up, they became alive, joining in the roar of the whole line, which he had already passed. Through the insane deafening roar of those voices among the masses of troops standing dead still as if turned to stone the hundreds of riders of the suite moved carelessly and symmetrically and most of all freely and in front of them were the two men the emperors every man in the mass had their full passionate attention fixed on the emperors the handsome young emperor alexander wearing the horse guards uniform and a cocked hat with its peaks front and back with his nice face and resonant though soft voice grabbed the attention of everyone. Rostov was right near the trumpeters and with his keen eyes had spotted the Tsar and watching, and watched him coming nearer. When he was twenty paces away and Rostov could clearly see every detail of his handsome and happy face, he felt pure, tender ecstasy like he'd never known. Every trait and every, every, trait and every movement of the Tsar fascinated him. The Tsar stopped in front of the Pavlograds, said something in French to the Austrian Emperor, and smiled. Seeing that smile, Rostov couldn't help but smile himself, and his obsession with his sovereign grew larger still. He wanted nothing more than to express his love in some way, but knowing he couldn't, 
wanted to cry. The Tsar called the colonel of the regiment and spoke to him briefly. Oh, fuck, what would happen if the emperor spoke to me, thought Rostov. I'd probably jizz myself to death. The Tsar spoke to the officers too. I thank you all, gents. I thank you with all my heart. To Rostov, every word seemed like it came from heaven. He would have died a thousand times over for this, Tsar. No problem. You have earned the St. George's standards and will be worthy of them. Oh, I want to die for him. I want to, thought Rostov. The Tsar said something else, which Rostov missed, and the soldiers, straining their lungs, screamed hurrah. Rostov bent over his saddle and shouted too, hurrah, with all his might, feeling a, de a real desire to hurt himself by shouting, if only to express his rapture fully. The Tsar stopped in front of the hussars and paused there as if making up his mind. How can he be unsure, thought Rostov, but even his indecision seemed majestic and obsession-worthy to him, like everything else the Tsar did. That hesitation didn't last long. The Tsar's foot in whoops the star's foot not food the star's foot in the narrow and fashionable at the time boot <coughs> excuse me touched the belly of the bobtail bay mare he was on his white gloved hand gripped the reins and he mo moved along followed by his sea of aides de camp swaying behind he rode further and further stopping at other regiments till <coughs> till at last Rostov could only see his white plumes sticking out from amid the suites that surrounded the emperors. Among the gentlemen of the suite, Rostov saw Bolkonsky sitting on his horse lazily and carelessly. Rostov remembered his little run-in with Bolkonsky from the day before and wondered for a moment whether he should follow up with his challenge to him. Of course not, he thought now. Why think or speak about that shite now? In a moment of pure love and rapture, such self-sacrifice. What do our little bickerings matter? I love and forgive everyone now. Once the emperor was nearly at the end of the regiments, the troops started a ceremonial march past him, and Rostov, on his new horse, Bedouin, which he'd bought off Denisov, rode past too. Uh, rode past too, at the rear of his squadron, and that is to say alone and in full view of the emperor. Before he reached him, Rostov, who was a fucking good horseman, spurred Bedouin twice and managed to put him into the show-off trot that this animal sometimes went into when excited. With his foaming muzzle bent to his chest and his tail extended, Bedouin, as if he also was aware the emperor was watching, passed in tip-top form, gracefully lifting his feet high with each step as if flying through the air without touching the ground. Rostov sucked his stomach in, kept his legs well back, and felt like he was one with the horse as he rode past the emperor with a serious but blissful face, like the very devil, as Denisov would say. Absolute rippers, those Pavlograds, remarked the emperor. Oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, thought Rostov. If he ordered me to leap into the fire this instant, I'd die of happiness. When the review was over, the fresh Russian officers and Kutuzov's lot collected in groups and started talking about the awards, about the Austrians and their uniforms, about their front, about Bonaparte and how fucked he was, especially if the Essen Corps got involved here and Prussia took our side. But the talk in every group was mostly about Emperor Alexander. Every word and movement the man had made was recounted with ecstasy. They, had, they all had just one wish, 
to advance against the enemy together as soon as possible under the Emperor's command. Under the command of the Emperor, there's no way they could lose. They'd vanquish anyone, whoever got in their way. That's what Rostov thought, and so did most officers after the review. The review had left them feeling more confident of victory than if they'd won two battles. All right, there we go. There's another chapter for you. Whoa. <laughs> Rostov's out of his mind. He's so happy to see the Emperor. All right, have your say about that one over at the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I will see you tomorrow.